Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I got to admit, I forget a little where we landed on the plan of the rest of our lives. I love it. We might we might get our clicks back after all. You moved off professional obligation to clickdom. I know. It's great. But I but I miss it. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Emily Stewart, ProPublica's Dara Lind. We normally, you know, have just been having Emily on to talk about the economy and and her areas of expertise. Uh, But Trump's impeachment wrapped up with an acquittal. And it seems like a big deal. Um, historically, it has been rare for presidents to be impeached. With Trump, it's, you know, it's like a little bit of a what else is new story, but that itself is an extraordinary measure of our times. Uh, I was a little surprised by the quantity of Republican votes to convict, which was, you know, more than I was anticipating, more than just Mitt Romney, more than just the usual moderates of Lisa Murkowski and, and Susan Collins. He also picked Picked up the retiring uh, Pat Toomey. Uh, Cassidy from Louisiana was surprising. Burr from North Carolina has sort of been known to be at odds with Trump over time. But, you know, it, it was clear, I think, from the quantity of conviction votes and also from the fact that Liz Cheney is a sort of member of House GOP leadership. She voted to impeach Trump, got a lot of criticism from the right. But interestingly, the House caucus did a secret ballot vote as to whether to retain her in the leadership. And she won very handily, Um, even as Republicans overwhelmingly back Trump sort of in public. That to me was an interesting test. Like I've always I've always wondered about the theory that Republicans in Congress like secretly don't want Trump and and want to get rid of him. But we had with Cheney, we had with retiring members voting to convict. We had with Mitch McConnell seeming like at one point he was trying to get Trump impeached and then backing down. I think the first real evidence that really solid evidence that Republicans in Congress want Trump to go away, wish that there was a way to make him go away, but that they cannot take collective action against him. At least that's my my interpretation of the impeachment saga. Yeah, because of the fact that all of these gestures kind of ended with the end of impeachment saga, right? Like there's nothing that you could imagine even a particularly motivated Congressional Republican caucus, under your logic, Matt, successfully doing to make it easier for there not to be Trump without them having to like actually publicly step out against him. So to a certain extent, this is all a little bit postmortem as opposed to an actual discussion of where we think the Republican Party is likely to go from here. And for that reason, I'm a little bit ambivalent about 
you know, focusing too much on it, but it is interesting. And so I think we can have a little postmortem as a treat. Because what particularly, I think, interests me about the quantity of backlash was a couple of things. First of all, I think the rationale that Richard Burr gave uh, was it was particularly satisfying to me because it was something of an exception that proves the rule just to something that, that I've often stated, which is that people rarely invoke precedent to say, well, I really want to do this thing on the merits, but I can't because precedent. And Burr kind of did that, right? He he said in his statement supporting his conviction vote that he continued to believe that it was unconstitutional to convict a president after he had left office. But because there had been that vote on the constitutionality directly at the beginning of the trial and you know, his side had lost, that he had to take that as binding precedent because that's how the Senate works, uh, which was a very obvious contrast from the way Mitch McConnell treated it, which was essentially to say, we would have wanted to convict, but this vote that we already lost, you know, last week, we should have won. I believe that we were right. And so therefore, you know, I'm voting to acquit. This says a lot about the extent to which Mitch McConnell sees the Senate as an institution worth preserving qua institution. But it also, I think, does say some things about it's kind of the rare occasion where you actually do get an opportunity to see when people are talking about precedent, what they mean is, I have discovered a rhetorical tactic for me to get what I want 99 times out of 100. But the way that McConnell framed it wasn't just, well, the horse is out of the barn. It was kind of hinting pretty heavily, which is something that other Republicans have hinted as well, that they wouldn't necessarily be averse to criminal prosecution of Donald Trump for what he did you know, in the days leading up to and the kind of early hours of the riot on January 6th, which was, frankly, an interesting thing for them to be doing for political reasons as much as anything, right? Because it does kind of seem like the one exception to the rule, even even though like it actually doesn't matter, no US attorney in, in America is going to go, well, I'm not sure that I have a case to make against Donald Trump. But elected Republicans are indicating that they would be open to it if I did. And therefore, I'm going to like, it's not actually going to affect the real world. But it does create a potential political liability. If your theory of the case, Matt, is right, and I think it is, that like as much as they might wish that the skies would part and Donald Trump would just disappear, that they aren't willing to actually do anything that would make it seem like they're trying to make that happen, the kind of rhetorical interest in prosecution does seem to be a potential vulnerability there. Well, but maybe my read is a little bit different on this, but it's a lot easier to speak out against Donald Trump right now or vote against him because he's no longer in office and he no longer has a Twitter account. Just imagine, you know, who cares? Like whatever state legislature is censoring someone like I don't really care about that. But if I'm a Republican, I'm a little bit worried about Donald Trump's Twitter. And so I do think they've had an opening now whether or not a lot of them are taking it, at least some of them are taking it, to kind of just let nature take its course in a way that he's no longer out there. And that doesn't mean he won't come back, right? Like, maybe he'll start to appear on Fox News again or launch whatever the heck Trump TV would be. But it does feel to me, like, at least right now, the silence gives Republicans some space to kind of move past him and maybe not give him a ton of attention anymore. Like, why try and poke the bear who's off in Florida playing golf? I mean, I think this is just a classic collective action problem, right? All it takes is one 2024 presidential Republican hopeful 
you know, who may not privately think that Donald Trump himself will run again to publicly be the person who is defending Donald Trump for everybody else's wishes that he would go away to mean absolutely nothing. And that's always been, I mean, that's, that was the reason that so many Republican presidential hopefuls voted to acquit or not to impeach to begin with, right? Because even if in theory, they would prefer a 2024 field in which he's not running, they don't want to provide an opening for somebody else to say, they wanted to to stifle your champion, and I was the only one who stood up for him. So it does seem to me like, while the fact that there isn't a operational Twitter account, so he can't just, you know, sick the mob on whoever, uh, which I don't think would be a literal thing. But after January 6th, I can't say for sure wouldn't be. That's definitely, I think, something that's changing the short term calculus. But there are really big open questions about what his continued role is going to be like. It did seem after the vote was taken on Saturday that he was going to give a televised statement. And, you know, then they had to essentially tell whatever reporters had assembled to stand down. But it was it did seem that he was like going to take that opportunity to kind of leap back in. And the minute that happens, it doesn't seem to me like you're going to have a very different vortex from the one you had in 2015, where, yes, the Twitter feed was one source of his constant ability to inject himself into the news cycle, but so was his open invitation to call into any one of several cable news morning shows, you know, or like spend an entire show on Rush Limbaugh, that kind of thing. So it does seem to me that if their assumption is that he can't really hurt them quickly right now, all it takes is a little bit of him showing more interest in becoming the kind of full-time TV watcher in chief that he's always wanted to be for that to become a much bigger problem for Republicans. So, I, yeah, I mean, I think the Twitter ban, right, has played such an interesting role in this because I agree with everything Emily said, right, which is that Trump being sort of offline seems to have played a big role in Republicans' calculus. Also, though, Republicans have universally denounced the tech companies for deplatforming Trump, right? So it's this weird thing. That's the context in which I read the criminal prosecution stuff. Like, I think a bunch of Republican senators would be delighted if a prosecutor can make a case against Donald Trump and win a conviction against him. If someone brings charges, they will denounce that prosecutor. Yes. Yeah. If Trump is acquitted on those charges, they will praise the acquittal. But privately, they hope it will happen. But of course, they also know, right? You've seen this, I think, in both Trump impeachments, which is that part of his lawyer's formal argument in both cases has been, this is conduct you could not win a criminal case on. Right. That the this did not meet the legal standard of incitement versus, you know, because we have First Amendment in the United States. Like you can say a lot of stuff, including inflammatory stuff, including things that aren't true. And you can't lock me up just for like my takes being bad. Right. Um, incitement is like a really tough criminal charge to, to make. I think, you know, like normal brain is that. Uh, the job of president of the United States has certain special obligations and that Congress can take steps that you would against the president that you would not want to see the criminal justice system take against a, a, a private citizen. And I think there's also a formalist argument that like as long as you're arguing that that a sitting president can't be criminally charged and that impeachment is the way to address this, then like if there's a reason for that, then impeachment has to be a meaningfully different thing, not just we're going to have a bunch of people who aren't in fact experts in criminal law and criminal procedure 
become, you know, criminal lawyers all of a sudden. <laughs> but the what's interesting to me about the, the Twitter ban is that it's, I don't want to say it's fake, but it's not the reason that Trump has receded so much from public view, right? He's not fighting it. He's not texting Don Jr., who is then posting the screenshots on Twitter. Every time Trump's office has released a statement, I have seen a bunch of reporters quote the statement on Twitter, right? If he wanted to put out a statement calling Richard Burr a funny name, suggesting that he deserves to be in jail for the insider trading you know, allegations that were launched against him, that Lara Trump would be a way better North Carolina senator. Um, if he wants to say Lisa Murkowski is ugly in an official, you know, like that yeah. would the normal Trump thing in which people are formally speaking, what's happening is that people are criticizing him. But like what's actually happening is he's being incredibly amplified. Right. Like that would work, notwithstanding the Twitter ban on Twitter. If he went on Clubhouse this afternoon to have a no. dialogue with uh, Judge Janine or anybody, the 5,000 quota would be filled up immediately. The people in the 5,000 person room would be live tweeting it constantly. Every TV producer would be saying, holy shit, why are we letting this guy go on Clubhouse and promote it? Like, why aren't we booking him on Fox and Friends? Why isn't he on ON, right? There is something that we don't know. Right. Which is like, why isn't Trump trying to communicate with the public? And like Jack Dorsey is not the reason. And I thought the reason was that Republicans in Congress had said to Trump that like they really did not want him out there, that that it would be counterproductive, that he was going to be acquitted and they needed him to stay chill for a little while, right? Kevin McCarthy went down to Mar-a-Lago, had some meeting with him. There were a lot of reporters there. They could have said something and they didn't, right? Like, so how long does that last, right? He didn't break his silence right after the acquittal. But, you know, is he really going to just like go golfing and forget about these people who sort of tried to knife him and, you know, Mitch McConnell denouncing him up there on stage. And I don't know, like, it's it's hard for me to believe. Like, I, I think he's going to be back. I mean, I keep thinking that, too. But then at the same time, just like on a human level, I wouldn't mind a break after being president for four years, you know, <laughs> doing maybe a coup. What You know, I do understand, like, maybe just trying to walk away. It is strange now that he's not back out there but at the same time it does kind of at least to me force the media and all of us to move on from him which on a personal level for me is like quite nice to be like okay I mean it is strange that he's not back out there but I don't know it seems like there's all of this discussion of Ivanka running for the senate right or Laura Trump and and I guess the question is there too did they have that Trump power that that he has? Can they direct the media narrative in the same way? And I think the answer is probably no. And so figuring out how to kind of make their way in politics without dad is a question that they're all dealing with right now, too. Yes, I definitely I, I want to play around with this idea because, I mean, obviously, none of us have any particular insight into what Donald Trump will or won't do. And it does seem like that may, that even he may not be totally certain how he wants to be involved in politics in the next you know two to four years. You know, and as always with Donald Trump, instead of talking about 
the kind of political incentives to do X, Y, or Z, we end up talking about the demands of one man's ravening ego, which is just like not a useful frame for political analysis more generally, because it tells us nothing about anyone who isn't Donald Trump. But I think the possibility that he is going to lie low for a while does raise some, you know, interesting dynamics, because it's basically like, I don't want to say like the politics of the absent king, but it does feel a little bit like there is an undisputed leader of the party who everybody accepts as the leader of the party who is not being active. And so in what way do you try to step up to fill that role without seeming to usurp it? And in what way do you, you do you evoke that authority? And we definitely have seen, Emily, I think you're right, that when Trump is around, people trying to assemble a Trumpist politics without being Donald J. Trump have not succeeded. And generally, we haven't seen that in the dynastic sense. You know, we've seen it from like, other people trying to make Trumpism into an ideological dynamic within the Republican Party. They haven't necessarily been able to kind of tap into the level of enthusiasm that's needed, you know, to get a relatively narrow and relatively low propensity coalition of voters in, in great enough numbers. But we haven't seen the kind of Trump dynasty attempt to really step into that role. And, you know, I think that on on one hand, you do have the questions about like potential Senate runs, although it does seem a little bit like it's always very easy to get attention by threatening to run for office. And so it can be a little bit tricky to figure out whether those are serious desires on the part of Ivanka and Lara Trump, respectively, or whether those are just ways that Trump's allies are trying to argue, you know, the fact that I'm close with Donald Trump will continue to make me powerful in my particular political context. But the other question there is Don Jr., right, who is still on Twitter and who was going after, if not, you know, like not giving them funny names or anything, but did tweet right after the acquittal vote, impeach the rhinos. Don Jr. has always been kind of the one person who seems to have the taste for culture war that Donald does and the fervent support of some of the kind of most ideological elements of the Trump coalition, certainly the extremist elements of the Trump coalition. And so that I think is going to be a particularly big question. Is A, is there any tension between, you know, people in the Trump family who might be considering like running for a Senate primary, which is going to require a lot of like small time retail politics, even though they are Trump's. And does Don Jr. actually have the pull, the platform, the ability to immediately command attention that made his father not just powerful with certain actors inside the party, but like able to reach people who weren't otherwise following internal Republican politics? I do also think like not having Donald Trump, Donald Trump in the picture does kind of allow Republicans to return to a more typical type of Fox News antagonism toward the administration, where like every once in a while, turn on Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or whatever. You know, now we're back to talking about like the migrant caravans coming and things like that. And so with Donald Trump not there to suck the air out of the room, there is a world where if Republicans want to thwart Joe Biden's agenda, whether it be the more moderate Republicans or Don Jr., like the way to do that is kind of to not have Donald Trump maybe out here saying whatever the heck he's going to say where nobody's going to talk about the $15 minimum wage. And maybe that's something Republicans don't want to talk about anyway. But like there is a world where also it kind of leaves some space to go back to what made Donald Trump sort of possible. Right. Which is whatever is going on in Fox News all the time. 
What's interesting to me, though, is that I think like one reason there is so much desire among Republicans in Congress to move on from Trump is that the ideological lessons of Trump have been very widely um, embraced by Republicans, right? I have not seen since the election a strong push by Republicans to go back to entitlement reform and Medicare privatization, right? Now, of course, they're doing the usual thing where they worry about the deficits now that it's Joe Biden who wants to spend money. But in an interesting way, if you had a like neo-Orthodox faction of Republicans who were saying, we need to go back to Paul Ryan's policy aspirations, that would then provoke a like explicitly, like a not opportunistically pro-Trump faction, but a like legitimate, no, you're wrong. Paul Ryan was wrong. These new ideas that we are running on are better, you know, and you would have like an organized debate about Trump. But instead, there's like a consensus. I I don't want to say a uniform consensus, but broadly speaking, Republican leaders seem to think that the Trumpist policy synthesis was correct and that they in the future want to run on opposition to further expansion of the welfare state, um, hostility to immigrants, a lot of pro-police identity politics stuff, a lot of sort of Americana, but not the like old entitlement cutting agenda. But so that then means that there's nobody who needs Donald Trump to be the leader of the party. But there may be, like, there's going to be a primary in Pennsylvania for the open Senate seat there. And, and you know, there'll be other races like that. And individual candidates may want Donald Trump to support them for their sort of personal aspirations and agendas. And it'll be interesting to see if he gets dragged back into politics through that mechanism. Uh, is his name Josh Mandel, the former Ohio treasurer there is nodding at me. Um, you know, he is going to run for the Ohio Senate seat uh, that Rob Portman is giving up. And he and his announcement he said like nothing about policy or anything. He just talked about how angry he was about Donald Trump's impeachment. And it was like an obvious bid to like get Trump to weigh in on his behalf somehow and clear the field for him because Ohio has become like a quite red state, like in a midterm context, that open seat is like a gift to whatever Ohio Republican gets the nomination. So and and there's a bunch because Ohio is a pretty big state. There's a lot of House Republicans from Ohio. They're current and former down ballot statewide office holders. So you could have like a really fierce competition for that. And the Trump, you know, touch would be incredibly valuable there. And it's made all the more valuable by a context in which it's like not even clear that there's an ideological or policy disagreement among Republicans. The sort of personalistic aspects of Trump can be very influential. And and you see, you know, so much of the base is more into Trump as a persona and like a media figure than they are into like Orrin Cass at American Compass trying to like write down a, a Trumpist ideological synthesis. Like that project does not seem to have engaged a lot of people. Whereas Trump, there was a morning console poll uh, this morning before we record. It said 54% of Republicans want him to be the 2024 nominee, which is a lot, you know? And um, it's also, for the record, pretty much identical to where things stood in late November 2020. 
and substantially better for Trump than the poll that was taken a few days after January 6th, where there was much less enthusiasm for Republicans. So it does appear that there was kind of a window there that has closed either because it was only a momentary doubt among the Republican base or because it was an opportunity that, you know, national Republicans did not take. Right. But I do wonder a little bit about, I think, Matt, what you're saying about the appeal of Trumpist politics being pretty widespread across the Republican Party is accurate. I do wonder to what extent it's the result of them abandoning a set of policy commitments versus just that this is a style of politics that is very well suited to congressional inactivity. Because if you're running on preserving the status quo on most federal policies and then making a lot of symbolic noise on issues where there is limited federal impact, such as policing or where there are things to be done federally, but that there are kind of big lifts and people won't necessarily know about them, such as on immigration. Like It is well suited to an era in which Congress would rather not pass big bills and isn't particularly interested. And I know that this is like the third consecutive week I'm talking about this, but like, isn't particularly interested in the you know, we spend most of our time debating the big leg- the legislation and appropriations we're going to pass. And then like, that's a very open process. It, it does. It's very well suited to Congress people spending their time doing things like giving speeches and getting mad at publishers rather than legislating. And so I do think that there is a little bit, you know, that that has has encouraged the rise of those politics because it's equally appealing for people who are out of power but who want to be in the news cycle all the time, such as like the Josh's Mandela of the world, and for people who are currently holding office, but who don't necessarily want to set themselves up for accountability, right? Like, if you think about it, a party might face less backlash in the midterms if they haven't made promises that they then are compelled to break because it's very difficult to get bills through Congress. It's much easier to kind of weather incumbency if you've managed to find a narrative in which you're the perpetual victim. I agree with all that, (laughs) but I think, I just think like it's still true that 10 years ago, Republicans in Congress were spending their time mapping out a very ambitious substantive policy agenda, right? That they have now not gone back to. Yeah. They didn't even have a platform this year. I just think it's because I I think it's a math is hard thing as as much as anything. (laughs) Like the political will to do things is not there. But, you know, so I've been like revisiting, you know, some some old takes. Right. And the thing that a lot of smart liberals uh, who who I enjoy were saying, possibly including me, um, but it was just out there. I don't read my own old takes because accountability is bad about the 2012 campaign was that this was like the last dying grasp of conservatism, that they were looking at the demographics, they were looking at the trends and either they were going to win in 2012 and break the back of the welfare state or else it was lights out and they were going to have to become, you know, like a European center right party that is more conservative than the other party, but accommodates itself to the existence of these big programs and their entrenched responsibilities. No, I don't think anyone would say that like Donald Trump is America's Uncle Merkel. Um, But in some sense, like that's exactly what happened. Right. That like the Romney Ryan gambit failed. That was the last gasp. And now they have 
to come up with this different program. And meanwhile, the European center right is doing more of a politics of outsider and insider than it was doing five to 10 years ago anyway. So, right. You know, they're, they're moving that way in, in their own way. Um, but it's, you know, and maybe it'll change, right? I mean, I don't think February 2021 is the time to make a definitive uh, prognostication on this, but Republicans are fighting, right? They are fighting with each other a little bit above board, a lot kind of under the table, like weird knife fighting. Um, but they don't appear to be fighting about this question of like, do they need to tackle the like growth of entitlements in in the long term? And, and you had like Mitt Romney came out and he was like, we should have this new child benefit. And, you know, his colleagues like have rejected that idea. They don't want a new benefit. But they're not saying like there was this um, welfare reform 2.0 legislation as recently as 2017, 2018. Uh, Tara Golshan wrote some great articles about it for Vox that like Paul Ryan, you know, put together and it was going to be his um, kind of swan song. And Doug Jones won that Alabama Senate race. So their margin there got really, really narrow. Mitch McConnell told Ryan, like, you just got to put that in the file drawer. Like, we're, there's no way we're doing that right now. And it just hasn't come back, right? Like, there's no indication that anybody is like, wow, we had this big Bush era expansion of SNAP benefits, then Obama expanded it further. And like, now we need to roll that back. Everyone's just kind of like, la-di-da. I guess it could be because they're too lazy. But they're in politics for some kind of reason. Well, also just at some point, if you realize that kind of stuff is like, I mean, if you have like a Donald Trump who's sitting and like maybe lying through his teeth of being like, I'm not cutting Medicare, blah, 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 blah. Like, it's hard to kind of turn around and do that. Especially when you've passed like a giant tax cut for rich people that you kind of don't want anybody to talk about that much. Yeah, I almost <laughs> wonder if the kind of budgetary politics of this are just that, especially when we haven't yet pulled out of the pandemic, that like it's just assumed that the budget is going to be so totally out there for an indefinite enough period of time that it almost seems silly to design policies based on a reasonable federal budget because that horse has just been let out of the barn. I don't know. I agree that it is a little bit early. To, uh, on the one hand, it is a little bit early to to prognosticate about the future trajectory of the Republican Party. On the other hand, this is the time in a political cycle where you tend to see the most energy for ambitious policy proposals because it's the most removed from the next time that voters are going to be asking questions about them and like the most removed from when candidates are going to need to be doing most of their time campaigning. So the fact that like we haven't seen, you know, there haven't been a thousand Romneys blooming does, I think, tell us something about the enduring appeal of the Josh Mandel style of personal politics, which for the record, I don't necessarily think of as just a personal plea to Trump to come and save him for the race. I think that we have several examples of primaries during the Trump era where, yeah, even if running on Trumpism doesn't give you the kind of boost in the general, there have been plenty of primaries in which your ability to tie yourself most closely to, you know, I like Donald Trump, even if Donald Trump isn't making an endorsement in your in your race, and I and Donald Trump will both be fighting for you along the same axes, like that does win primaries in deep red states. And so, you know, especially in the absence of Jim Jordan 
running in Ohio, who would obviously like be the Trump blessed candidate, it does make a certain amount of sense that everybody else is going to be running, is going to be kind of running for the, I am the true inheritor of Trumpism mantle, whether or not Donald Trump himself is going to make an appearance. Well, I do. I mean, I know like Ohio is kind of like, obviously at this point now a red state, but you have to remember like he did not help in Georgia. Right. And I do wonder how that maybe if that changes a little bit of the calculus here that they lost two seats there and he was trying pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> and so I am a little bit curious, like, does that change the calculus if I'm a Republican being like, eh, like he didn't. It wasn't like, I mean, it was very like Trumpy. They all tried to be Trumpy and it didn't quite work out in Georgia. And that's how they lost the Senate. Well, and you know, the, the people who I've spoken to, you know, the sort of number, number crunchers on this side, like on the Democratic side, like they are all quite convinced that Trump underperforms generic Republicans, not by a huge amount, not by like the amount that never Trump intellectuals believe he should or something like that. But like there is a there is a margin of people who don't want to vote for for Trump. And it's two sided, right? Like Trump got a lot of people to vote for him who had previously voted for Barack Obama. So like there is a upside to Trump. But what seems to have happened is that Republicans who aren't Trump have learned to do what worked for Trump in that regard, right? And Trump himself, though, does not have professional politician skills, right? There's a there's an aspect of sort of like beginner's luck to the whole Trump phenomenon, which is that, you know, he shows up at the table, he doesn't really know how the game is played, but by not being locked in to certain preconceptions, like he delivers something that works better than what other people have been doing. But the professionals can copy what works well, and they can do it without, you know, like also trying to make money on their hotel business or just like being weird at at odd times. And it's again, it's like, it's why I think it's so clear that Republicans like would like Donald Trump the man to kind of fade away, right? Because they they've learned from him, they've taken on what they can take on. And Kevin McCarthy is now no longer a like Paul Ryan mini me. He is very focused on immigrants and supporting the cops and, and, you know, all that good stuff. But he's still like Kevin McCarthy, like a professional politician who's come up and like, even though California is a blue state, he knows Republicans live there. He's one of them. He thinks everybody should get their disaster aid. He thinks you should be broadly polite in an appropriate situation, all that kind of stuff. And Trump, you know, a, a resurgence of Donald Trump could disrupt that for down-ballot Republicans, but also could really upend Washington, like actual concrete politics, because there is no way that the Biden administration is going to get, I shouldn't even say the Biden administration, there's no way that members of Congress are going to be able to achieve quiet collaboration on bipartisan legislation if they are worried about the anti-pope in Mar-a-Lago uh, throwing lightning bolts at you because he wants to get attention for himself, right? A, a remarkable amount of legislating happened when Trump was actually president, 
Um, because like he didn't care about that kind of thing. So like Lisa Murkowski and Joe Manchin wrote an energy bill. Um, there was this criminal justice reform that Trump later took credit for, things like that. But now that he's out there as a kind of rogue operator, it, it's like scary, right? Like, how are you going to do an infrastructure bill if you're worried about Trump saying that like you're a total sellout? It, it seems like, I don't know, like potentially quite bad to me. Right. I mean, it does seem that, and criminal justice reform might be the exception here, but it does seem that there was an inverse correlation between how willing Republicans in particular were to do anything congressional uh, and how much attention Donald Trump might plausibly be paying to it. Like, you know, there were were a solid couple of years there where we were uncertain whether he was going to sign, whether we ended up not having government shutdowns, but it looked like we would several hours beforehand because not only had they not gotten a commitment from Donald Trump to sign a spending bill, but he was out there on Twitter in the hours before the vote talking about things that had already been way baked in that they couldn't strip out just to get his signature and threatening a veto over them. And, you know, I I, I think that that when it's not a veto is a little bit less powerful. I also think that it assumes that Donald Trump, who has infinite culture wars he could be fighting, will instead choose to focus on policy wars, which are which assumes an interest in policy that we did not see during the Trump presidency. But, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's a possibility. I do think that taken to its logical extreme, though, this can, this can result in more timidity from Republicans than we're actually seeing, right? There are, it is kind of assumed a little bit that Donald Trump isn't going to be like coming out and saying Congress needs to sign another round of $2,000 checks again and upending the process that way. So whether that's just that their ideological priors are stronger than their fear of Trump in that particular instance, or that they have an accurate read of Trump that he is, if he returns to public life, more likely to be focusing on the culture war stuff that was always his forte anyway. We're not seeing that particular constraint show up yet. Yeah, I just can't. I mean, who knows? But it's hard to imagine a world where Donald Trump, who like never wanted to know policy stuff as president, is suddenly like, hold on, let me see what's in this stimulus. Well, I, I want to be clear. I, I'm not suggesting that Trump is going to be diving into the <laughs> into the weeds of negotiations. I'm suggesting that Trump may come back into the public eye with a narrative of betrayal in which the initial point is the Judas Republicans who stabbed him in the back personally, but it then becomes the case that anyone who collaborates in any kind of cross-party negotiation, look at all these people voting for Pete Buttigieg, Mm -hmm. you know, transportation secretary confirmation, that they are part of the uh, cabal of treason, the people who on secret ballot supported Liz Cheney. They are selling you out. The establishment is selling you out. The only person you can trust to uphold conservatism is me and Don Jr. and Eric and Lara, right? It's a very normal Fox News talk radio sort of narrative, but Trump having some uh, unique ability to sort of uh, push that forward and make it concrete to people rather than just about ideology, you know, policy, right? But anything that happens on policy can feed into that. But that too assumes a level of professionalization from Donald Trump. Like it, it assumes that Donald Trump is going to learn some of the things he didn't learn in his half decade in political life. Other actors in the Republican Party were able to, you know, adopt while learning from him. Because Donald Trump's view of enemies has just has, has 
generally been very personal and very grudge based. And so I find it hard to imagine a world in which he's going after the people who voted for Pete Buttigieg instead of saying that Kevin McCarthy wasn't strong enough in supporting him instead of going after like, you know, it seems much more likely that even in a world where some of the senators who voted for his acquittal are like the most partisan Republicans, that he's not going to be attacking the rank and file Republicans who voted for his acquittal if they cross the aisle on other things because they voted to acquit him. Well, I also do wonder, like, I mean, obviously, we're very far away from 2024. But you see like the Josh Hawley's and the Ted Cruz's of the world defending Donald Trump. And at some point, if they want to run against him, like, does he start to be mean? Did they start to be mean? Like, at what point do you stop being able to kind of play ball with this guy? Or do you just Mm -hmm. decide that you're not going to run for president? You know, at what point do you how do you deal with him if you've been kind of an ally? It's one thing if you're Mitt Romney, but if you're Josh Hawley, like, I don't know how you kind of deal with the next four years. All right. I think we should uh, wrap this up, take a break, and come back to our white paper of the week. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Okay, uh, what we have today is can nudges increase take-up of the EITC, evidence from multiple field experiments by Elizabeth Linos, Alan Perhofsky, Aparna Ramesh, Jesse Rothstein, and Matt Unrath. Uh, this is about the earned income tax credit, uh, which we know and, and love here on The Weeds. Uh, EITC does a lot of good for families, um, not for the poorest families, but for families in kind of, I guess you would call it shallow poverty as opposed to deep poverty uh, by increasing their wages. There's a lot of research indicating that this extra money has, you know, significant benefits on on kids' lives, uh, parents, etc. But not everybody who is eligible for EIGC benefits actually gets them. I think uh, participation is in the sort of low 70 percent. And it's because this is like a weird tax thing. Um, You have to file for taxes, which poor people sometimes don't do. You have to know that you can claim EITC benefits, right? And then you have to know how to do it correctly. Uh, There's a lot of IRS audits of EITC claims. People may have kind of heard stories of friends who got in trouble trying to to claim EITC. Um, So a bunch of people don't do it. And there's always a question of, like, are there good ways that we could fix this? And it would be great if 
if there was like cheap, easy nudges uh, that would get this to work. People have a lot of ideas about this. Uh, the basic review here is that they did six big uh, pre-registered large-scale field experiments of different sort of plausible sounding nudge ideas to increase the ITC uptake, and they did not work, which I think is part of a, a larger growing skepticism of nudging uh, that is out there. I was looking at something totally unrelated about who applies to colleges. Um, and there was this like promising sounding nudge idea and it and it doesn't work. I think one issue is possibly that like people are just getting nudged to do too much stuff. And it's like it, it drowns out. Uh, but at any rate, I mean, it's uh, I guess the, the moral of the story here is like if you want to address the fact that people are not getting the benefits they're entitled to, you're going to need some kind of bigger solution. I was a little bit disappointed on reading this paper because I was super looking forward to kind of using this to crack open like the big backlash against nudges. And it does seem that a lot of the backlash against nudges is assumes a stronger form of nudge than what we see here, which is, you know, what they call an educational nudge, trying to deal with the fact that people who might qualify for benefits don't necessarily, you know, as Matt was saying, know that they qualify or know how to, you know, how to do that, which is, it's really hard to draw the line there between what's a nudge and what's just a public education campaign. Um, but it does, you know, and the authors establish this account for most of the behavioral interventions that are classified as nudges. A lot of the critiques of nudges assumes that not just the outreach strategy, but the policy itself is being shaped by an attention to behavior and by either trying to maximize participation in the program or just trying to shape an endpoint of behavior that is morally beneficial by whatever definition of morally beneficial that is. That's not what's going on here. They're not like California isn't designing the EITC to either like maximize savings among the poor or to, you know, or even just to maximize uptake. As a matter of fact, one of the things that that creates some friction here is that California, unlike a lot of other states, doesn't scale its state income tax credit to the federal EITC scale, it's more progressive, which, you know, logically might mean that the people who would benefit most are least likely to have to be already filing their tax returns. So, you know, the fact that this stuff doesn't work doesn't necessarily just strike me as a problem for the idea of the nudge. You know, the authors aren't coming to the conclusion that the post nudge discourse has come to generally, which is like clear rules, clear benefits. That's not, you know, the problem with the state, the California EITC isn't that it's overly complicated. The problem they're saying is that more intense interventions need to happen to get people who have few or no positive interactions with government and get them to be willing to engage in the compliance costs that are going to result in them getting a benefit that outweighs those costs. I mean, I think beyond even this paper, to me, at least it's felt like the past year has really been a demonstration and like we need the government to make things easier for everyone and we need it to be really clear what needs to happen. Like I have I have done a lot of reporting on like unemployment insurance and like you see how hard it is for people to get the benefit. And a lot of the times like these systems are designed to nudge people like away from things where it's like, well, the benefit's going to be really bad and it's going to be little. And like, do you really want to have to call your unemployment office millions of times a day to maybe get a hundred dollars a week? And so it does feel like papers like this that land in a moment where it's like, whether it's mask mandates or things like that, where it's like, we do need programs to be easier to to access and to be like much clearer with people 
what's going on. Like just me as like a human being, you send me an informational packet and I'm like, okay, cool. Thank you. And I might not put together like what you want me to do with that. To be fair to the proponents of nudges, they often characterize their work as saying, make it easier. But what they're saying, make easier is like, what is your end goal? What are you trying to do with the policy? Make that easier. And between the fact that behavioral economics is a field that's very empirically driven, right? That's reliant on, okay, what do people do in this particular situation rather than by easily broadly applicable rules of human behavior? And the fact that I think there's a certain outsized interest in counterintuitive results in kind of the media and policy elites where like, it's much less compelling to make policy based on something that you always a little bit suspected to be true than it is to make policy based on something that is a striking empirical finding that hadn't occurred to you. You know, that kind of make it simple mandate isn't how nudges kind of get thought of generally and certainly isn't being applied to the policy itself. And I do think you're right, Emily, that like the last year has been a very clear indication that the political and policy benefits of clear rules, clear benefits are very, very strong. I don't know what that does for stuff like the EITC, though, where the most obvious answer to this particular problem laid out in this paper would be to make it mandatory for everybody to file state income taxes, which like would be great for some of the people who would be eligible for the AITC, who would be getting much more in money than they would be paying in compliance costs, but would be not good for a whole lot of other people, including, frankly, some of the people who would end up getting benefits at the end of it. So it's not super clear what clear rules, clear benefits does to the hard problem here of how do you prevent the deadweight loss of benefits by people who are qualified for them, but otherwise disinclined to pursue them? So two two thoughts on this. One, a point that I, I wish I saw more exploration of in this um, tax benefit uh, conversation, because I think we're seeing a version of it play out now with, with child benefits, is that I wonder how much of non-uptake is actually due to immigration issues um, and that it isn't, in fact, people who are eligible for benefits failing to file for them, but it's people who aren't eligible for benefits or, or rather are not legally eligible to work in the United States of America, deliberately trying to avoid contact with the system um, in a way that a more comprehensive like state panopticon would would undermine their personal objectives, uh, which I bring up because I think that the simplicity conversation can sometimes be confused with the automaticity conversation, right? Which is that some things can be very complex on the back end but they're very simple to the user because you were just like there and you were identified and it works automatically, right? So like, I have no idea how property tax assessments in Washington, D.C. work, but I do know how paying property taxes in Washington, D.C. works, which is that the government tells you what your assessment is and then you're supposed to pay the money. Or in most cases, actually, the government tells your bank what the assessment is and then they roll it into the mortgage. And if you want to contest it, there's like a way to do that. But like the basic framework is they just tell you and they hunt down every property owner and they and they make you pay. Right. And there are lots of things that you could do like that. Right. Like there could be automatic voter registration. 
Um, basically everybody gets a social security card when you're born. And so then social security benefits come relatively easily to you, even though the actual formula for them is extremely complicated. And so you can take benefits out of the IRS and put them into another kind of, of system. And of course the IRS could do your taxes for you. Like the way tax compliance works is the IRS has to have some sense of how much taxes you owe to check whether you've paid them correctly. They could just tell you on the front end, right? And then leave it up to you, right? And say, look, if you think this is wrong, like show us your work, but this is what we think you owe. And then the way I just pay my property taxes, like you could just pay your income tax very simply. Um, we don't do that for lobbying reasons, uh, deliberate difficulty. But that's just a different way of thinking about all this stuff than the nudging, right? Instead of thinking like, how do we fix people's behavior? We just think like, how do we make the system work better for everyone? Uh, but the immigration angle, you know, occurs to me just because like, there is concern a lot of times in the United States from immigration advocates who want to maintain a somewhat Swiss cheese-like state apparatus in the United States rather than having comprehensive insight into who everybody is and where they are and what they're doing all the time, even though like that panopticon could have a lot of benefits uh, that are not immigration related. It could also create a lot of problems for people. Um, you know, and you see this in the Medicare for all debate. I mean, you see it in, in a whole range of situations. But anytime you assume the government is going to have superior insight into like exactly what's going on with everybody, uh, that's a problem for, you know, 11, 12 million people without papers. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, it's totally plausible that you're right, that a lot of the tax benefit stuff is about immigration. I, I think that that is totally separate from the question of whether those people could ultimately benefit, right? Because what we mm -hmm. see on immigration over and over again is that it's, A, such a complicated system that it's very hard to get clear messaging out about who is and isn't at risk of arrest and deportation, uh, and B, that it's so discretionary that people who are not yet you know, citizens of the United States, even if they are illegal immigrants, are often worried to do anything that might be construed as a problem for their future citizenship. That gets, I mean, that gets back to the education thing to a certain extent, but it also does get to what you were saying about automaticity, right, Matt? Because the public charge regulation that got so much attention when Donald Trump enacted it, uh, and that, you know, Joe Biden has promised to reverse, but like, if it happens through the regulatory process, will take a long time, is that it didn't say that people who were eligible for public benefits, it would count against their green card applications. What it said was that if you got benefits that you were already ineligible for, uh, without saying you were already ineligible, like that you wouldn't be able to get a green card and wrapped the whole thing in such a rubric of discretion that it made it genuinely very difficult to tell if you were making enough money that you qualified for benefits, but weren't getting, hadn't applied for benefits because you were worried about not getting a green card, if that could still count against you because your income wouldn't be seen as economically independent. So it's very easy to understand that someone who is putting themselves out there and subjected in, you know, there's a potential benefit in like, becoming a permanent resident of the United States, but it's subject to this incredibly opaque process that you can't even predict with reliability, that that's going to have a massive impact on both people applying for benefits and people applying for green cards. And so, you know, I think that, that talking about this in terms of automaticity 
does get to kind of the heart of the use of discretion in the administrative state, which is something else that can kind of cut both ways. It is an anti-universalist way of looking at things, but it does often appeal to people who who don't want things to be judged only across the axis of how much do you earn? Okay, you get to stay here. Yes, no, which is what the alternative to a discretionary policy can often be. I agree. all right wise words thanks guys Uh, thank you Emily in particular for joining us today thanks as always to our sponsors our producer Eric Janakis and the weeds will be back on Friday